Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome to the Exam Study Expert podcast. Today I'm joined by author Ginny Smith, longtime friend and fellow psychologist, who's just written a fantastic book called Overloaded, talking all about the chemistry of the brain, how little chemicals like adrenaline and dopamine govern so many of our thought processes. We call them hormones or neurotransmitters, more technically. So I was, I was delighted when Ginny agreed to, to come on the show today to talk us through a little of the brain chemistry of some of the brain processes that are most interesting to us as students, in particular memory and uh, stress and anxiety, nerves on exam day in particular, as well as attention, focus and concentration. It's a really fascinating conversation today. I'm probably guilty of not thinking about the chemicals that govern our thought processes as much as I should. So I was really interested to, to have this conversation. And as you'll hear, there are a lot of practical implications in terms of practical takeaways from some of these principles that we're going to get to, which will help us harness our memory, our attention and manage our stress a little better. So without further ado, let's meet Ginny and get right into today's conversation. Ginny, would you introduce yourself for us, please? Hi, I'm Ginny Smith, and I'm a science writer and presenter, which means that I spend my time telling people about science, mainly neuroscience and psychology. I have a few different things that I do. I run Braintastic Science, where we produce shows and workshops for kids and young people um, all about the brain and how it works. I also write for an adult audience, and my latest book, Overloaded, is now available. And that's all about our brain chemistry and how that controls every aspect of our lives. And we're going to talk about some of those aspects of our lives today. Uh, looking forward to it. Perhaps by way of context, could you just sort of give us the, the kind of the 101, I suppose, on how the brain works in terms of its structure, neurons, how they communicate, and the importance of all those chemicals that you write about in, in the book? Yeah, so our brain is made up of a few different types of cells which are grouped into neurons, which are the ones that send messages and communicate, and glial cells, which for a long time scientists thought were just kind of supporting and protecting the neurons. We actually now know that they have a bit more of an active role. But when we're talking about learning and memory particularly, the neurons are super, super important. So these are quite funny-shaped cells. They have a long part in the middle, and then at both ends, there are kind of frondy bits. And the long part is called the axon. And electrical messages can pass along that axon and they can do that really, really quickly and easily. But then to get to the next neuron, they have to go along one of the frondy bits and then jump across the little gap. Uh, so the frondy bits are called dendrites. Each neuron can have hundreds of these and that's how they connect up with other neurons. So each neuron in your brain can connect up with hundreds and hundreds of other neurons. It's incredibly complex. But that gap between two neurons, which we call a synapse, is really important because that's where your brain can kind of change what's going on. And the message passes across there using chemicals. So that's why chemicals are so important. You've got this electrical signal that goes along one neuron, but then to get to the next neuron, it has to use chemicals. 
Nice. Your, I think, first chapter in the book is all about how these chemicals help make learning and memory work. That's something we talk about a lot here on the podcast. Uh, a lot of people are very interested in how we can make our memories work better for us. So I'd love to just get your thoughts on how these chemicals, to the extent we understand, support learning and, and memory formation. So the most common chemical in the brain is called glutamate. And that's what we call an excitatory neurotransmitter. So neurotransmitters are any chemicals that are used to pass across that gap. So when the first neuron releases chemicals and they pass across to the second neuron, they can either make it more likely that that neuron sends an electrical message or they can make it less likely. What glutamate does is it makes it more likely. So that's your kind of your basic go signal. And what happens when we're learning new things is that we want that go signal to get stronger. We want to strengthen the connection between those two neurons. And the way you can do that is by repeatedly activating them. So if you do the same thing over and over again, you're going to be sending signals along the same pairs of neurons over and over again. And that sort of tells your brain that this is something really important. And what it does in response to that is it changes the way this chemical glutamate is released. So the more often you activate those pairs of neurons, the more glutamate the first one produces and the more receptors for that glutamate the second one produces. Now, you can imagine this, actually, this is something that I do when I'm doing my stage shows, which obviously I can't really do at the moment because of coronavirus, but I get kids up on stage to be a neuron. Um, and I have five kids in each neuron and they have to pass the message by doing um, a sort of Mexican wave like you see in a sports field. So that's the, the electrical signal going along one neuron. But then to get to the second neuron, they have to throw ping pong balls and the second neuron has to catch them. And that's how you can think of the neurons working. So you've got this very quick message passing along one neuron and then throwing ping pong balls, which is a bit of a slower process to get to the second neuron. But if you imagine if I gave that first neuron two people throwing ping pong balls rather than just one, and I gave the second neuron two people catching ping pong balls rather than just one, that message would get across the gap, across the synapse a lot more quickly. And that's what happens in the brain when you learn something new. Your neurons start making and releasing more of the chemical and the second neuron starts receiving it through more receptors and then the message can pass more easily. And that's why when you first start learning something, whether that's riding a bike or playing a musical instrument or speaking a foreign language, it's really hard work because it's a slow process getting the information across those synapses. But the more you do it, the more you practice it, the stronger those synapses become and the easier it is for that signal to pass. And that's why it suddenly starts feeling a lot easier. Yeah. Cognitive psychologists sometimes talk about the engram, which is a, the pattern of neurons that codes for a particular fact or nugget of information. One of the things I've got particularly interested in recent years is how we can help to lay down those engrams faster and uh, encode that information in memory more quickly, more, more rapidly with fewer practice attempts. And one of the things from the world of sort of cognitive psychology that seems massively important is retrieval practice. So not just exposing your brain to sensory input over and over again, but actually practice testing yourself and practicing recalling those facts, either using flashcards or just by doing quiz questions or, or getting someone else to test you, that sort of thing. From all the work done in cognitive psychology with students and watching how they learn more effectively, 
retrieval practice, self-testing seems to form memory much, much more quickly. We may be slightly pushing our boundaries of understanding here, but is there anything we know about the neurochemistry, I suppose, of, of what's going on here? Yeah, so it's a really interesting area because this is one of the things I ran into again and again in the book is that the neuroscientists do their thing and the psychologists do their thing and trying to sort of match it up can be really tricky. But there are some some definite kind of neuroscience-based reasons why retrieval practice would be really useful because what you're doing when you are retrieving a memory is you're reactivating those engrams, the sort of network of neurons that has stored that memory. And by trying to retrieve it, you're going to be activating them. And that, again, is going to be strengthening them. But you're also effectively practicing exactly what it is that you're going to be doing in the exam. Because in the exam, you're not going to be reading information and trying to store it. You're going to be trying to recall it. So you're going to be using the exact same pathway that you would then need to use in the exam. And one of the things we know about the brain is it gets better at the things that you do a lot. So if retrieval is what you're aiming for, practicing retrieval makes a huge amount of sense. I mean, it's the equivalent of if you were trying to learn to drive a car for the first time, you can read about it all you want, but nothing beats actually getting in the car and feeling those pedals and physically doing it. That's going to store the memories in a very different way. So I imagine it's quite a similar process. That's really interesting. Uh, Just one other thing I had to ask you about studying and the neuroscience of studying is brain enhancing drugs, things like Ritalin and modafinil, which you kind of hear about in the dark fringes of the world of studying, particularly once you get to sort of university level. This was around when I was a student. And you know, my instincts ever since then has always pretty strongly been that kind of taking any kind of brain altering supplements is a pretty bad idea. I'd be curious to know your, your views on, on that. Yeah. So I guess my first question would be, do you drink coffee? I do. So you already do take a brain-altering substance, just putting that out there, because caffeine is a brain-altering substance. It affects our neurotransmitters, and I can go into that a little bit more. That's not to say that I disagree with you, just that I think there are lots of brain-altering substances that we do all, all use regularly. When it comes to the sort of cognitive enhancing drugs and use, most of them are drugs that are have a medical use and are then some people use them off-label effectively. So Ritalin and all the kind of related ones are stimulants. They're related to amphetamine. And what they do is they kind of ramp everything up in the brain. Now, they're usually prescribed for people with ADHD, and we think in those people, levels of various neurotransmitters are low, so ramping them up can help. The evidence for whether they help people who aren't starting at that lower baseline is not very convincing. And I actually found a few papers that suggested that when people take Ritalin, they believe that they are concentrating better, studying more effectively, getting through more work, but they actually aren't. So what it increases is people's confidence in their abilities, not their actual abilities, which I thought was quite interesting. And this is a really important point that kept coming up in the book. And that is that just because you need a chemical for your brain to function, that doesn't mean that more of it is necessarily 
better. We have kind of a Goldilocks spot in our brains for each of these chemicals and overloading it with more of them isn't necessarily a good thing. And you can see this really clearly when it comes to stress, for example. So when we're stressed, our bodies release a whole host of different chemicals. And there's one called adrenaline and a version of it called noradrenaline, which we have in our brain, which at the right level increases memory storage. And this is, we think, an evolutionary thing that if you were a hunter-gatherer and you were wandering around and you went to a certain place and you met a bear, it's quite important to remember where you were when you met that bear because you might not want to go back there again. So we know that emotional memories are stored better. But if you're under prolonged stress for a really long time, memory storage actually decreases again. And that's because of a second chemical called cortisol, which kicks in a little bit later than the adrenaline and effectively damps down memory production to save that stored memory. So you don't want to be overwriting the memory of the bear with your walk home. So cortisol sort of damps down memory storage. So some stresses can be beneficial for memory, but too much for too long is bad. And it's the same with all the chemicals. So I would agree that there is very little evidence for Ritalin helping most people. And we don't know what it does long-term to a healthy person's brain. So there have been long-term studies on people with ADHD and it shows good safety ratings and things. But if you don't need a drug, they don't do long-term testing on people who don't need it. So we don't know. And particularly, we know that our brains keep developing until our mid-20s, the prefrontal cortex, the bit right behind your forehead, which does kind of planning and inhibition, um, strategic thinking, doesn't finish maturing until our mid-20s. So even if you're a university student, your brain is still cooking, it's still maturing. So messing with your chemical levels then could be possibly risky. There's another drug called modafinil, which I think is absolutely fascinating, which has better scientific evidence for its value. We don't know how it works. No one knows how it works, which again would make me very cautious about using it. We know it's got good safety data in the short term, but again, there haven't been long-term studies and there certainly haven't been long-term studies in young people with developing brains. But there are some scientists who are pushing for modafinil to be able to be used, for example, by pilots, by surgeons, people who need to stay awake and concentrate for a long time, because it does seem to boost wakefulness in even very sleep-deprived people better than caffeine does, and without the side effects like hand tremors, which, particularly for a surgeon, are not a particularly ideal thing. Um, So a lot of doctors drink a lot of coffee, but if you could give them something that would help them stay awake for a 14-hour surgery without those hand tremors. So I'm, I'm more open to those drugs. I think when you start talking about using them for studying, you get into a whole host of ethical dilemmas, as well as the kind of neurochemical ones around who would have access to them. Is it going to make Uh, socioeconomic status, which is already hugely influential on how well people do in school? Is it going to make that even worse if only well-off parents can afford them for their kids? Are you going to end up in a weird situation where if you're the only kid who doesn't take them, you can't compete? Yeah, there's a huge amount of ethical dilemmas as well as the kind of 
the neuroscience stuff that I think have to be thought about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've drawn out a few of the a few of the risks there, and, and you write about them in the book. My view on something like modafinil, you, you mentioned it helps promote wakefulness, and so you might naturally use it to combat sleepiness if you're trying to pull long hours. Just from my own experience of wandering around libraries late at night, and you know, seeing the crazy shifts some students put in, I'd be really worried about students self-medicating with something like that and trying to stay awake for days on end or weeks on end. Given how much we know about the vital importance of sleep to general mental and physical health, particularly in a developing brain, a younger person's brain, I'd just be really worried about the kind of longer term impacts of of trying to self-medicate like that. Oh, definitely. And also the importance of sleep for memory. We know that sleep is absolutely vital because that's when your memories get stored for the long term in the cortex, the kind of outer layer of the brain. So if you're not sleeping, you might be taking in lots of information, but it won't actually be being stored thoroughly. So yeah, it definitely using it to replace sleep is a really bad idea. In fact, I think there was one study I found that said that you're better off studying for an hour and then taking an hour's nap than you are studying for two hours, which is my kind of experiment. But that's sleep after you've learned something is absolutely vital for a process we call consolidation, which is the formation of those long-term engrams, those networks that store the memory. Yeah, I, I love all these studies. It's always so interesting, but also I kind of always add a caveat to things like that because it's so easy for people to misinterpret. So I was talking to a chap just last week who'd obviously come across something a little bit like this. And so his study routine was every night immediately before he went to bed, he kind of thought he needed to cram as much as possible into his memory just before he went to bed. And then of course, he was going to bed stressed and wasn't able to get much sleep. <laughs> the pragmatic application of some of these lab studies uh, sometimes need to be thought about a little bit, I think. Yeah, the sleep doesn't have to be directly after you've learned. You you take in information all throughout the day and it is processed throughout the night. I think the important thing is you want to sleep at some point between learning and testing. Your brain also, it doesn't just translate it, it extracts the gist and it fits it in with all the other information that's already in your brain. And that's why that um, phrase of kind of sleeping on a problem, that if there's something you're thinking about, you sleep on it and the next morning it's easier to solve it is, is totally true. And the neuroscience tells us that it's super important for learning and memory. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned caffeine a little earlier on as being a brain-enhancing drug. I-, I wanted to ask you a bit about caffeine because lots of students often have a lot of caffeine, either in the form of coffee or cans of energy drink. What are your thoughts on whether caffeine can have an impact either on the, the kind of process of studying itself or perhaps indirectly via sleep habits? So caffeine works on a chemical in the brain called adenosine. And adenosine builds up as a kind of byproduct of your cell's natural process that they go through during the day when they're really active, you're awake, they're kicking out adenosine as a kind of byproduct. What caffeine does is it blocks the receptor that normally detects adenosine. So the adenosine's still there, but your brain can't see it. It doesn't know that it's there. And because your brain sort of uses adenosine as a measure of how long you've been awake, the more of it there is um, in this particular region of the brain, the sleepier you feel. So if you're blocking the receptors, you're going to feel less sleepy. So that's how caffeine works the first time you drink it. You've got a level of adenosine, you're blocking your receptors, you feel more awake. 
this is great. You can focus on things more because we know that alertness does impact how much information you can take in. So as a one-off, I think caffeine can be beneficial for focus um, and therefore for how much information you're taking in. The problem is that whenever we regularly change the levels of chemicals in our brain artificially, our brain fights back. It doesn't really like us doing that. So it tries to kind of counteract the effects. There are a few different ways it can do this. So if you've got higher levels than normal of a certain chemical, it might start producing less of that chemical to kind of bring you back to baseline if you're adding it in. If you're blocking receptors like you are with caffeine, it might start making more receptors. So what that means is that when you drink the caffeine, it might still have an effect, but it's going to have less of an effect than it did before for that same amount because say you've now got more receptors or more adenosine is being produced. But what it also means is that when the caffeine leaves your system, you've still got those extra receptors and your brain is still producing more of that chemical. So you're going to feel more sleepy than you would have if you'd never drunk the caffeine. And this is something that a lot of us, I think, experience, that once you are a caffeine addict, um, once you have a caffeine habit, you get up in the morning and you feel really, really tired until you get your first shot of caffeine. And actually, what that first shot of caffeine is doing is it's bringing you up to the baseline that you would have started at if you'd never drunk coffee at all. So it's no longer having an add-on effect. It's just bringing you back up to where you were before. So if you really want to use caffeine to boost your alertness, what you have to do is use it really sparingly. So if you had a cup of coffee every couple of weeks when there was something on, you were feeling particularly tired, you really needed to focus, then yes, it might be having an effect. But if you have it every day, then your brain's going to fight back and you're just going to need it to bring you back to baseline. When I was a student, I very much followed the coffee every couple of weeks when I really needed it strategy. And it worked quite well. As an adult, as I've grown older, I've fallen more and more into the trap of regular coffee drinking. But the good news is for people like me, if we did want to reset, we can do, can't we? You can, yes. It only takes a couple of weeks of abstinence to get back to normal. You might also find that you get some other nasty side effects, though, like headaches, which is to do with the kind of dilation of blood vessels around your brain, which can be affected by caffeine. So some people find they get withdrawal headaches and things, but it does only take a few weeks for your brain to kind of get back to normal. I sort of did the opposite of you. I drank a lot of coffee through university and then post-university, I completely stopped and I felt the resetting of my tolerance because when I accidentally ordered a calf coffee rather than a decaf, I was sort of bouncing off the walls, really jittery. Whereas at uni, I could drink three, four cups and not really feel the difference. So it, it really does work. Nice, nice. One other thing you mentioned earlier, which I'd love to pick up on again, was the stress hormones, uh, cortisol and adrenaline. You talked quite interestingly about how they play a role in memory formation and how a little bit of adrenaline can actually help for memory. Too much stress, particularly over the long term, too much cortisol can slow memory formation. I'd love to also ask a little bit about the impact of those hormones on performance. And I'm thinking particularly about kind of exam day performance when the nerves are pumping. You know, what do we know about the brain chemistry of being nervous and anxious and in that kind of heightened state of arousal with a big exam day or, you know, big match day, something like that, a big performance? 
And is there anything we can do in that situation to influence our brain chemistry for the better? Yeah, so this is one of those things that really varies from person to person. We talk about a sort of U-shaped curve. Um, and I mentioned earlier that idea of a kind of Goldilocks point. But everyone's Goldilocks point is a little bit different. So some people work really well under pressure. One of the things that happens in the fight or flight response, which is what happens when you're scared, is your heart rate increases, your breathing increases, that increases blood oxygenation. So you're getting more oxygen to your brain and that can boost alertness. So some people find they work really well under that little bit of pressure. But for some people, if their baseline is maybe a bit higher to start with, that extra bit of adrenaline can push them over the top of the U and down to working less well. So it really, really varies. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why some people do well in exam situations and some people don't is kind of how stressed exams make them and whether that extra bit of stress and pressure is beneficial to performance or whether it's negative. The other thing that can happen is there's something called context-dependent recall, which says that we remember things better when we're in the same state that we learned them in. And that state can be anything from like location to smell in the environment, but it can also be internal state. So one of the things that I think can happen when you have that moment of sort of going blank in an exam is that if you learnt it in a relatively low stress environment, then suddenly you're in a high stress environment, your internal chemistry is very different and that somehow blocks the recall. Now, I'm not saying that you should learn everything under extreme stress because we've seen that long-term stress is bad. So I guess the question then is, can we reduce our stress chemicals in an exam situation to try and get around those issues? And there are a few ways that you can reduce your stress chemicals. There's another chemical that seems to sort of protect against stress, which is called oxytocin. And that's often known as the cuddle chemical because it's produced when you hug someone, um, also when you feel close to someone, um, or when you stroke a pet. None of those are things that you're going to be able to do in an exam. But some scientists also think that you might be able to give yourself oxytocin because it's the sort of deep pressure on your skin of a hug that causes the release. So like giving yourself a little hand massage might be enough to release a bit of oxytocin and help kind of damp down that stress response. Another thing that does seem to work really well is deep, slow breathing. And it sort of works because we've got this nerve system that goes from the brain to the body and controls when you're stressed, your breathing rate increases. So you can sort of almost trick the brain into thinking you're less stressed by consciously slowing your breathing down. And scientists think that's one of the reasons why things like yoga, meditation, tai chi, all of those things can be really effective for stress management. And they all involve quite a lot of kind of deep, slow breathing. So probably not getting up and doing a yoga routine, but you could do 10 deep, slow breaths. And that might be enough to start kind of calming down your nervous system and reducing that stress response. Yeah. Look up some breathing exercises and, and, and be sure to practice them before you need them in the moment so that you know what you're doing with them. It's, it's really interesting that point about context-dependent recall as well, that, that idea that the environment you learn in can have an impact on how well you remember something if the environment you're having to remember it in is related to the environment you learned in. Having at least some exposure to working in those kind of environments where you feel a bit on edge 
the more you hate them, I think the more you need that practice and that exposure to doing at least some studying in, in that environment, not only unlocking that benefit of the kind of context dependent recall effect, but also just getting yourself used to being in that kind of situation and, and performing in that kind of situation. And certainly it might be a really useful place to do some practice papers and do that retrieval practice in that environment that's really more similar to the exam environment. Absolutely. Ginny, this has been absolutely fascinating. I just wanted to ask, is there anything we've missed in terms of talking about the brain chemistry, particularly the brain chemistry of a student that might be helpful to mention? Yeah. So I think it's quite important to talk about taking breaks because we know that you can only focus for so long on difficult work. Your brain gets tired, you get tired. And there's a chemical that's really important for telling your brain whether it's time to focus on the outside world and take in information or focus on the inside world and start that consolidation process. And that's called acetylcholine. And studies have shown that levels of acetylcholine are higher when people are actively engaged with the outside world. And when they start kind of daydreaming or thinking about what to have for dinner later, they reduce. So they've got lower levels of acetylcholine. So that seems to be really important in telling our brain whether it's time to focus on the outside world or time to focus on the inside world. And for studying, the outside world means your study books, right? It's the world outside your head. Yes, exactly. So for studying, you need both because focusing on the outside world is when you're going to take in new information. But focusing on the inside world is really important for storing it and consolidating it. So I think some people spend so long staring at their books that they just get to this state where they're no longer taking in any more information. But at that point, what you need to do is go and rest, go and give your brain a time to process what it's been taking in for those levels of acetylcholine to start ramping up again, and then come back to it. And that's much more effective than staying in that place where you're just staring at a book and you realize you've read the same paragraph four times and you still have no idea what it says. And I think a lot of people use rests as a motivational tool, like when I get to the end of this section, then I can have a rest. But actually, I, I've been reading Claudia Hammond's book, The Art of Rest, and she was quoting a study that said that rests are much more effective if you take them before the end of the section. So if you're going to take a five-minute break, don't wait till you've finished what you're doing. Take it now and then come back and it'll be more effective. And rests don't have to be long. So even taking a sort of two-minute break to do some deep breathing can boost your attention when you come back. So I think don't be afraid of resting. Your brain is active even when you're doing that. And that part of studying is just as important as reading, writing, taking in the information. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And really interesting book recommendation. I haven't heard of The Art of Rest. I shall go and buy it immediately after this. And I can put a link to that in the in the show notes, as well as, of course, to, to your book, Overloaded, which maybe we should just tell people a little bit about where they can find it and perhaps a little bit more about where they can find you if they're interested in knowing a bit more about what you do generally, as, as well as just the book. So Overloaded should be available pretty much anywhere you like buying books. So it's certainly on Amazon, it's on Waterstones, it's on bookshop.org, which is a collation of local bookshops. And I assume it's in some physical shops if they're open now. I haven't been able to, to see any. If you search Ginny Smith Overloaded, you should be able to find it. If you want to find out more about my writing, presenting, training, sort of things that I do for adult audiences, I'm GinnySmithScience.com. 
I also run Braintastic Science, which is aimed at schools and young people. And that website is braintasticscience.com. So we do shows and workshops in schools. And we have a science club all about the senses for kids age 7 to 12. So if you're interested in finding out a bit more about how your brain works, then yeah, do check that out. I'm also on social medias as at Ginny Smith Sci and at Braintastic Sci. Fantastic. Well, Ginny, thank you ever so much. We'll put links to all the resources you just mentioned, not least your personal websites, as well as the uh, the book, Overloaded, which I've read and, and thoroughly enjoyed, uh, and would certainly recommend if anyone's interested in getting into uh, the brain in a bit more detail about that soup of chemicals, all those neurotransmitters uh, play a role. And it's really, really interesting. Just to wrap up, I just wanted to ask you one final question, if I may, uh, which, which I always close with. If you could take a trip back in time, meet your sort of 17-year-old self, and whisper a few words of wisdom in uh, her ear. What might be at the top of your mind? What would you most want to to tell her? I think probably just to relax about it a little bit more. I've always been someone who's been very driven and always wanted to kind of do my best at everything. And at some points, I let that get to me too much. And looking back, my first year of university, I was way more stressed than I should have been. So I think just telling her to kind of relax about it a little bit and that exams aren't the be all and end all and you won't be doing what you think you're going to be doing now in 10 years time. So just chill out about it a bit more. Excellent. Ginny, thank you ever so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks again, Ginny, for a fantastic conversation. Remember, if you'd like to explore any of those resources that Ginny mentioned, you'll find links in the show notes. Uh, In particular, I would highly recommend checking out the link I've put to her new book, which is a great read and and, and goes into a lot more detail of the sort of things we've been talking about today. It's it's beautifully written and, and, and huge fun to read. So if you're interested in that, do check out the show notes. And with that, that brings an end to today's episode. I just wanted to say thank you for taking the time to listen. Remember, if you're studying for exams and want my top strategies for helping you study smarter, not harder. I've put all of my absolutely top tips and techniques into a little guide for you, the exam success cheat sheet, which you can get hold of uh, for free at the website at examstudyexpert.com forward slash free tips. And you'll get a little PDF download, which contains all of my best strategies and techniques for studying for exams, helping you learn faster, remember more, and ultimately get bigger results uh, with less stress and less work. You'll find all that at examstudyexpert.com forward slash free tips. Thanks again for listening today. It's been such a pleasure to have your company and I will look forward to seeing you again next time. Just before you go, did you know you can hire William as your very own coach and mentor to show you the stress-free way to ace your exams by studying smarter, not harder? Find out how at examstudyexpert.com slash coaching. <laughs>